This evening we're going to be studying the subject of pre-tribulational premillennialism, also called dispensational premillennialism, also called dispensationalism. And that's how we will refer to it, dispensationalism. We're going to study a few of their assertions, a few of their beliefs, and then see what the Bible actually says about them, because I find that these beliefs that they hold are wanting, that they don't really line up with Scripture. So that's what we'll deal with this evening. What kinds of misgivings or failings are there in the dispensational view of the return of Christ? To remind us of what dispensationalism believes about the return, dispensationalism says the world is worsening, things are becoming worser and worser, people are more and more evil, and then there will be a great tribulation. The church, however, will not be in that tribulation, but be raptured before the tribulation occurs. During the tribulation, Israel and the rest of the world will suffer, especially Israel will suffer, an an intense uh, period of persecution. And then at the end of the seven years, Christ returns visibly and then sets up his millennial kingdom, 1,000-year reign on the earth. And after that 1,000-year reign, then there will be eternity. This is what they believe. And they take the Bible in most of its descriptions about the return of Christ. They take the Bible literally. They do understand that some passages are figurative, but generally speaking, they are more literal in the passages that are the common source of second coming passages. They're more literal than other viewpoints are. Another thing to note about dispensationalism, they assert that there needs to be a proper distinction between Israel, the nation, the nation Israel, the 12 tribes, and the church. There ought to be a distinction between Israel and the church. That distinction, I believe, that they they press it too far. They press that distinction too far, and it becomes unbiblical at certain points. Well, that's a, a bit of a summary of what they believe. Now, where is it that they deviate from the Bible? Well, I have about seven points that I'll raise tonight on that that subject. The first one is, they say that the church is not meant to suffer, and severe suffering is meant for Israel. The church is not meant to suffer. Some of them, there are differences among them, some of them say, that the church is not to experience any kind of real suffering. The real suffering only happens in the tribulational period and is for the nation Israel. It's for ethnic Israel, the 12 tribes, and it's not for the church. Now, others among them will say, yes, the church does suffer now, and we suffer some, but we will not suffer in the great tribulation. We will not be in the great tribulation. Only... Israel and the rest of the nations who don't believe in Christ at this period in history, in this period, when they don't believe now, they will be a part of it at that time. So, why is it that I disagree with this viewpoint? Well, firstly, among the uh, dispensationalists that say that we will not suffer at all, I find that to be very contrary to many passages of the Bible that say to the church, that we are to suffer, and we are to suffer until Christ returns. 
it goes against many passages, and we will look at a few of those. But the other aspect of this first viewpoint is that the worst period of suffering, they say, is for Israel and not for the church. The Great Tribulation is for Israel to suffer and not for the church. Well, let me put these two together and say that I believe that the church is destined for suffering, not condemnation, but suffering at the hands of our persecutors. We're destined to suffer and even be in the Great Tribulation. And the only one who will save us from any of this is Christ when He returns. And when He does return visibly, He'll return not only to deliver us, the church, from this intense suffering, but He will also punish the wicked. He'll do this, the two of those actions at the one time when He returns visibly. He'll return once, and that's what He'll accomplish. Why, why do I say so? Let's turn to a few passages to prove this point. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, he's describing our faith and how we have an inheritance in heaven, we're protected by the power of God. And then verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6 that we have been distressed by various trials for the purpose of proving our faith, verse 7. And then he says that all of this, when we come forth from the fire of the tests, we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what that phrase is also in Revelation 1, verse 1. What is the book of Revelation about? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about the appearing of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and what happens when He returns. What leads up to it, and what happens upon His return. And he, here He's saying that we experience these distresses or various trials, and then we will be receiving praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's suffering, and then there's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He means the visible return of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. There, verse 12, the church, he's writing to the church, according to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He's writing to the church, and therefore he's telling the church not to be surprised at their fiery ordeal. 
It's not supposed to be understood by you as some strange thing. Why is it that the church suffers? No, the church is meant to suffer. It's meant to suffer. And then verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Christ suffered unjustly, so when we suffer unjustly, we ought to rejoice. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. There's rejoicing now in suffering unjustly, and then there will be rejoicing when he returns at the revelation of his glory. This is what is the, the church is meant to do, to suffer now, but with joy, and then enjoy relief from suffering when he returns at the revelation of his glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians we'll see that both the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians have much to inform us on this subject because it was at the church of Thessalonica that there was much confusion and also persecution that they faced. Notice, for example, he says in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake." You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. He continues to explain how they believed and persevered. Well, then notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14. 2.14 For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Then he says in verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? They're clearly suffering. They're suffering at the hands of their own countrymen, fellow members of the city of Thessalonica, just as the Jews persecuted those Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. They're both suffering. And he says that in verse 19, what is the hope of the apostle, hope, joy, and crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. What's He hoping for? 
What is their hope? That Christ will come. He will come. Notice he simply says, at his coming. He doesn't make any distinction between rapture, tribulation, and second coming. That kind of distinction is not here. And we'll see that it's absent throughout this letter and the next letter. Another place, 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11. 3.11 Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Verse 13. All of this is for the purpose of establishing the church unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. When Jesus returns, He's going to come with all His saints. I think that is a reference to all of those who have already died and believed in Him. They have all died and believed in Him, and He, he will come with them. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 4.13. Now, this suffering that is described in chapter 4 has to do with them and mourning the loss of their loved ones mourning the loss of their loved ones. And these loved ones, some of them may have died at the hands of their persecutors. So they're separate, separated from them. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Asleep means, that's a metaphor for dead. That you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Jesus will bring those who have fallen asleep in Jesus when He returns. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The comfort that they should derive from all this is that those who are dead in Christ or fallen asleep in Jesus, they will come with Jesus to meet those who currently are alive at the coming of the Lord. Verse 15. At the coming of the Lord. And so then, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 16. And then we who are alive will be transformed 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye, it will happen instantly that we who are alive will be transformed from having a mortal body to an immortal body, and those dead in Christ will rise from the dead, and we'll all meet the Lord, 
and will be with him forever. That's what this passage says. Again, it's saying that throughout the sufferings, throughout the, the distressful times, we're going to be here, and the only thing that delivers us is the coming of Christ, meaning the second coming of Christ. That is what delivers us. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. They're still suffering. About a year later, this letter was written. The 1 Thessalonians was written about A.D. 51, and 2 Thessalonians about 52, A.D. 52. And notice what he says about them and their afflictions. This again is written to the Thessalonians, which means it's written to the church, or the church here in verse 1, the church of the Thessalonians. Therefore, what he says to them applies to the church, which means it also applies to us. Verse 3, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. They are suffering persecutions and afflictions. Verse 4. They need to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And then he says that there will be retribution and relief. Relief and retribution. Verses 6 and 7. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Our persecutors will be afflicted by God. And, verse 7, and to give relief to you. So the church will receive relief. There will be retribution to the wicked and relief to the righteous. When will this happen? Verse 7 says, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. There's our word again. Revelation or revealed. Revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, they will be eternally destroyed. And verse 10, when he comes, his revelation in verse 7 is said in verse 10 to be his coming. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, that day, is the day of His coming, is the day of His revelation, the day He's revealed. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. This one will show that we will be here 
through the tribulation. Because proponents of the dispensational view, they say that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is not describing what the church experiences, but what Israel experiences in the great tribulation. Dispensationalists say 2 Thessalonians 2 is describing what Israel experiences in the great tribulation, in the seven-year period, not the church. However, as we've been seeing in First and Second Thessalonians so far, he's addressing the church about all these things and saying the church will suffer and then Christ returns to relieve us and then punish our enemies. So let's see how he says the same in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Well, that's the topic at hand. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. We're going to be gathered to Him when He comes. When He comes, we'll be gathered to Him. The two happen hand in hand, side by side, simultaneously. They cannot be separated. Verse 2. He has to address this problem because, verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They were troubled that the day came and they did not experience it. The day came and they did not partake of it. The day came and they missed it. They were afraid of that. And notice, the day of the Lord has come. There's our word again, come. Verse 1, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, when He comes. And then He says, on that day. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, that day is the same as 2 Thessalonians 2.2, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now what has to happen before Christ returns, the day of the Lord comes. Verse 3 says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send them, uh, send upon them a deluding influence, so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Verse 3, the man of lawlessness, son of destruction, and as he says in verse 8, that lawless one, 
The lawless one needs to be revealed and the lawless one needs to come because it says in verse 9, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. He has to come. He has to be revealed. And the apostasy of verse 3 has to occur. After those things happen, only then will verse 8 occur. And then, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. That is, the Lord Jesus, in due time, after the man of lawlessness is revealed, he will slay him by his coming, by the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. He will slay him, he'll destroy him, and this is when will be gathered to him. When Jesus slays the man of lawlessness, then we will be gathered to him. It's called the coming. It's called our gathering. And he'll slay the wicked and he will relieve us and gather us to himself. So when the dispensationalist view says the church is not meant to suffer, I find that in these passages... The church is meant to suffer and even suffer in the great tribulation. The only one who will deliver us in due time will be Christ. He'll relieve us by his physical, visible, personal return. This is the first point or a refutation of the first point. Now the second point. The second point made by dispensationalists. They say that the church will be gone from the earth in the middle part of the book of Revelation. The church will be absent from the earth from the middle part of the book of Revelation. Let me explain their argument. Revelation chapter 4. While you're finding Revelation 4, verse 1, you know that in the first three chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, we hear the word and see the word church appear several times. The seven churches, right? The seven churches of the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The church is mentioned up to this point. The argument of the dispensationalists is from chapter 4 through a part of chapter 19, from chapter 4 to a part of chapter 19, the church by word, the actual word church, does not appear in those middle chapters of the book of Revelation. That means the church is in heaven. The church has disappeared. The church has been raptured. That's why the, ch the word church does not appear from chapters 4 until chapter 19. The church is absent because the rapture has occurred and chapters 4 to 19 actually describe the tribulation, the great tribulation. Chapters 4 to 19 are describing the great tribulation as their argument goes. Now look at chapter 4 verse 1. This is supposed evidence for the rapture. 4 verse 1. After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, 
Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. According to their argument, it says that there's a door standing open in heaven. The door is standing open in heaven so that people can enter into heaven. And then when it says, come up here, though it is said of John, they say John is representative of the whole church. And when the voice says, come up here, not only is John coming up and being raptured, but the church is being raptured. Actually, John typifies the church being raptured and taken up into heaven. And while they are taken up into heaven, it says in verse 1, I will show you what must take place after these things. They say that when the church is in heaven, the church looks upon the earth and they see what happens in the seven years of great tribulation. They see what happens to the inhabitants of the earth primarily afflicting the Jewish people, but also Gentiles are involved. And this is what they see. The church views all this from heaven in seven years. And they get that from chapter 4, verse 1. Now, let me say in response to this argument, I think that we can have the church present without the word used all the time. That's one thing because that's one thing I will say because sometimes there are different words used to describe the people of God. Sometimes the people of God, sometimes Israel, sometimes my people, his people, sometimes it's the the sheep, sometimes it is the elect, the believers, the righteous. There are different words the Bible uses. The bride, the bride uh, so there are different words. Therefore, the church, the saved, true people of God who are saved because of the gospel of Christ, can be present even if a particular word isn't used. Now, as far as their argument goes, the word church does not occur again until Revelation 22 16. Now think for a moment. They say the church reappears in chapters 19, 20, 21, and the first part of chapter 22. The church reappears in the plan of God because the tribulation is over. Dispensationalists say chapters 19, 20, 21, and the first half of 22, the church is in view. The church is fulfilling and carrying out God's purposes. However, we don't find the word until 22 verse 16. So, when they say the absence of the word church in chapters 4 4 to 19 means the church is absent, well then you have to take their argument a little farther and say, well, the church has to be absent in all of chapter 19, all of chapter 20, all of chapter 21, and the first part, of chapter 22. But they don't take it that far. So it's a contradiction in their own scheme. It's a contradiction in their own scheme. Furthermore, the term saints, the term saints, which is descriptive of the church, does occur numerous times in the middle chapters of the book of Revelation. 
from chapters 5 to 20, the term saints occurs many, many times. For example, chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. The golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints take place there. Another place, chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to your bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Chapter 14 and verse 12. 14, 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In, the, in this middle part, right in the middle of the book, chapter 14, verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In the middle of this book, they are keeping God's commandments and keeping faith in Jesus. The saints, in other words, or the church, is present, and there's other evidence for them to be present in the middle of the book. Next point. The dispensationalists often say that the church can be raptured or will be raptured at any moment. The church will be raptured at any moment, meaning that it's unpredictable and it could happen literally in the next minute or in the next 10 minutes or 10 hours. 10 days, 10 years, but at any minute, it's unpredictable when it's going to happen. Now, it is true, the Bible says, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. So we cannot set a date, and that is true. We don't know for sure the day or the hour, and we should not speculate the day or the hour. But, is it correct, is it biblical to say that Jesus can return at any moment? Now, usually in the literature, they will say he can return at any moment, and then immediately, if, as you read them, they'll say, the Bible speaks of the imminent return of Christ. The imminent return of Christ. Well, this, this term, at any moment, and imminent, these terms are not found in the Bible, and they're not found with the meaning that they invest in those words. There isn't a passage that says Jesus returns or will return or can return, may return at any moment. There is no such passage. Now, the effect of the dispensationalists is to say that since he can return at any moment, therefore, it could be a surprise to us it could be a surprise to us. The element of surprise can even be on the church. The church itself could be surprised by the rapture of the church. That's the point that they make with the, the assertion at any moment. Again, the phrase at any moment, uh, I could pull out my hair trying to find it in the Bible. If, if you know a passage, 
Please show the passage, but I don't find a passage like that in the Bible. Now, let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians to show that this, in fact, is not the case. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing." What is the topic at hand? Verse 1, the times and the epics. Talking about the future times and the epics. Those that are related to, verse 2, the day of the Lord that will come. The day of the Lord will come. You might recall, this is the same terminology he's been using throughout 1 Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord. And also in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, he spoke about the day of the Lord has come. People were saying that the day of the Lord has already come. But 1 Thessalonians 5, how will this day of the Lord come? He says, it will come like a thief in the night. It will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying, the they is not the church. The they are the sons of darkness and night as he explains later. They are saying, peace and safety. They are saying, everything is going to be just fine. The world is not going to end. We don't need to be prepared for the day of judgment. There is no coming, second coming of Christ. In fact, many of them say there was no first coming of Christ. There is no Christ. So, they will say, peace and safety. Everything will be just fine. Those people, when they say those kinds of things, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. They will be punished when those birth pangs come, the destruction comes upon them suddenly. And then the contrast, verse 4. But you, brethren, that's the church, the bride, you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. We are not going to be surprised. 
We will not be robbed by a thief in the night. We're not going to be mistreated and abused like a thief does to those who are not expecting him. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. We're not that way because Christ and the apostles have told us what to do to prepare for his return and what to expect before he returns, what the signs of the times will be. He told us, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, Jesus told us what to expect to happen before his return. And he told us to live a holy life, the parable of the slave, for example, in Matthew 24. He told the parable of the slave to exhort us to be prepared for his return so that we're not getting drunk and we're not beating other slaves and committing other injustices and and sins against God. And then the master of the house returns and he finds that we have been derelict and irresponsible and even malicious with our behavior. The faithful slave is not living that way. He is living a godly life and preparing himself for the return of his master. The same here. 1 Thessalonians 5. We, the brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, he says. It will not happen to us that way. Therefore, when the dispensationalists argue that the church is raptured at any moment, imminently, meaning that it, it could take the church by surprise and suddenly we disappear, certainly the world will be surprised unless they watch some of the movies and read some of the popular books these days. They, the world will be surprised too. But that's not the way the Bible depicts it. It does not assert it that way. Then number four, a fourth argument of the dispensationalists. They say that the rapture, also called, according to them, the blessed hope, the rapture or the blessed hope is a separate event from the second coming. And it is separated by seven years, at least seven years. The tribulation is that which separates the rapture, blessed hope, from the second coming. Well, I refer you back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. I refer back to that passage because this is the central passage of the dispensationalists. It's not the only one, such as I mentioned Revelation 4.1 they use, but 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18 is their central passage to prove the rapture. And they say the rapture is not the coming of Christ, is not the second coming of Christ. It's the rapture. Now, it is true that the term rapture comes into English from the Latin phrase in verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. The verb to be caught up is from the Latin word to rapture, which comes into English. The spelling, of course, is different, but it's in Latin, and then it comes into English that way. So this term, the rapture, has been coined based on 1 Thessalonians 4.17. But 
Though we can use the word the rapture, I don't think that the common meaning of the phrase the rapture agrees with this passage. Because this very passage says in verse 15, And this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. This very passage defines what it means to be caught up. It means to meet the Lord when He comes, the coming of the Lord in verse 15. Therefore, the second coming is the same as the rapture. The rapture is not an event that is separated by seven years. The rapture and the second coming are the one and the same event. And as you recall, as we read earlier, throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he keeps on talking about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord has come, the day of the Lord will come. When he keeps talking about the day of the Lord and the Lord coming and us seeing Him at His appearing, us seeing Him when He's revealed, when he keeps talking about that, he's talking about the church, the church that suffers, the church that suffers and, and, and is only delivered by the visible revelation, appearing, coming of Christ. He does not see, he does not envision any kind of rapture that separates that coming. And technically speaking, the dispensationalists say the rapture is distinct from the second coming because in the rapture, Jesus does not land on the earth. He does not place His feet on the earth. He meets His people, the church, the, the saints, in midair and then takes them into heaven, the door that's opened in Revelation 4.1. That door that's opened, He takes them into heaven and then the church watches all the events of the Great Tribulation for seven years. And then the church returns with Christ at the end of the seven years when Jesus actually returns. His actual second coming, He returns to the earth. He touches His feet on the earth. Now, where does this word blessed hope come from? It comes from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 and verse 11. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, notice that we have two appearings here, two appearances. In verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That is a reference to the first coming of Christ. And then between the first coming and the second is verse 12. God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We live a holy life now. And then, the second coming, verse 13. 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We await the blessed hope, which is called the appearing. The blessed hope and the appearing. The same event is called by those two names. It's a blessed hope and it's the appearing. As we've seen in First and Second Thessalonians, and as we saw in First Peter chapter 1 and First Peter chapter 4, and Revelation 1.1, whenever we have this word revelation or appearing, we're talking about the coming of Christ. We're not talking about a rapture as distinct from the coming. We're talking about the coming of Christ. Our hope is to see Christ and to be with Him. So the verse that is used by the dispensationalists in Titus 2.13 to equate blessed hope with rapture actually equates blessed hope with the appearing, which is the coming, the revelation of Christ when he visibly returns in his second coming. Now, point number five, point number five, and I'll go through these last three quickly and together because they're interrelated and then notice a couple of uh, verses on this. Dispensationalists say in points 5, 6, and 7, point 5, they say that the wife of Jehovah is a distinct people, a distinct body. The wife of Jehovah, or the wife of the Old Testament Lord and the God of Israel, is distinct, is a distinct wife from the bride of the Messiah the Bride of the Messiah, or the Bride of Christ. All of you may not have heard this. Not all dispensationalists will say it in these terms, but the prominent ones who know the issues, they will say it in these terms. They will say, Wife of Jehovah is God's relationship with Old Testament Israel, and then Bride of Messiah, or Bride of Christ, is God's relationship, the Trinitarian God, and especially Christ, Christ's relationship with His church. And His church is that body, that group of people from Pentecost until the rapture. From Pentecost to the rapture, this group, whoever believes, is called the Bride of Messiah, Bride of Christ. Point number six they make. They say that in the literal millennium that takes place for a thousand years, Jesus returns before the literal millennium of a thousand years. They say that the church will co-reign with Christ in the millennium. They will, the church will co-reign with Christ. We are co-regents. We are kings with Christ reigning on the earth. While Israel... The nation of Israel is enjoying the Abrahamic promises literally fulfilled in the land of Israel for a thousand years. That is, they have the full border limits as depicted in the book of Genesis, such as Genesis 15, and in other parts of the Bible, such as in uh, Numbers chapter 34, all of the boundaries of the land of Israel will be given to Israel. They will not have warfare. They will have peace. They'll have prosperity, physical prosperity. And they will 
they will see Christ reigning and they will come to believe in Christ because of his reign upon the earth for a thousand years. The millennium is for Israel and the church reigns with Christ during the millennium. In order for Israel to tangibly, physically experience all of the Abrahamic promises. And then, point number seven. For the dispensationalist, the church equals the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. The church is the body of Christ. But the term Israel cannot and must not be used to describe the church. The church does not equal Israel. Israel does not equal the church. Israel is not the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. But Israel is distinct. Israel is not a part of the church. They are separate groups, separate entities. And God has separate ways, separate means of dealing with them for their spiritual life, for their spiritual benefit. He deals with them in different ways. Now, my answer to this is to say that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of synonymous words that the Bible uses from the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The Bible uses synonymous words to describe the people of God who receive the Word of God, the revealed Word of God. God uses terms such as my people, my sheep, my flock. He uses terms like my bride, my wife, church, assembly, congregation. He has all these terms. Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, Zion. All of these words are describing those who receive the revealed will of God. But throughout the Bible, those who receive the revealed will of God does not equate to those who truly know God, to those who are truly redeemed in Christ Jesus. So those who can legitimately maintain that name are only those who have faith in Christ, who truly believe in Christ. And this is why God can at one time say, you are my people or you are my sons. And then when they manifest that they don't believe in him, he rejects them and he says, you're not my sons. You're not my people. I'm disowning you. You're not my wife anymore. He uses all those terms. He says, you are my wife. You are my son. You're my firstborn. And then when they rebel, he says, no, you're not my firstborn. My firstborn is actually a microcosm of this huge nation. My, my true people are just a small group, the remnant out of the whole, because they truly live up to the name that they bear. This happens in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let's see an example. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, Exodus 4.22 Exodus 4.22 Then you shall say to Pharaoh, 
Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. There, God identifies himself in his relationship to Israel. Israel is my son, my firstborn. He has a relationship with them in some sense. And I'm arguing in a revealed sense, in that he revealed his word to them. He revealed his will, his covenants to them. Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. And verse 5, 32.5. Now he describes rebellious sons and notice how he disowns them and threatens to punish them. Deuteronomy 32.5. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord? O foolish and unwise people, is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Notice there. In a sense, he is their father. In a sense, they are his children. In the sense that we saw in Exodus chapter 4, 22. 4.22. In that sense, he is their father, and they are his children, his sons. But here... Because of their rebellion, he says, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children. Now God's disowning them. Notice also verse 19. 19. And the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation Sons in whom is no faithfulness. There again. In a sense, they are, the people are his sons and daughters. But then he says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation. Sons in whom is no faithfulness. There's no faithfulness in them. Therefore, he is disowning them. He's saying, I'm going to hide myself from them and they're going to be punished for what they do. Now, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You know that throughout Romans, Romans 1 to 8, he has explained the gospel and he's continuing to explain it. But primarily, he has already explained the theological content. What did Christ accomplish for us? He has explained it in the first eight chapters. So, naturally, we would ask, and they would ask, well, if this is so great and wonderful, why doesn't everybody believe it? What's going on? What's wrong with it? Because he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He ended chapter 8 with that assertion. It's great and wonderful. It's marvelous that we are saved. However, he cannot have complete, comprehensive joy when he looks at his own people, his own Jewish brethren. In chapter 9, 1 to 5, he says 
that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. He wants to be accursed. He wishes to be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 3. And why? Notice he says, verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless it forever. Amen. See, it's these people who have all of these benefits, the benefits of verses 4 and 5. Included in that is that they belong, they have the adoption as sons. They have the adoption as sons. And they're called Israelites, verse 4. And the other benefits, the covenants and everything else, the temple, the patriarchs. Now verse 6. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. We could read more to see his argument. His argument continues from chapter 9, verse 1, till the end of chapter 11. Now notice in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God that was published to so many people, and again, you would naturally ask, if so many people heard it, why didn't everybody believe it? Is the problem with the word of God? No. Verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. They're not all Israel, not all spiritual, not all belongers, or, uh, not all people who belong to God. They don't all belong to God, and they're not all children of God, simply because they are descendants of Israel, and simply because they are descendants of Abraham. They don't all belong to Abraham just because they have a bloodline that traces itself to Abraham or to Israel. That's not the way it works. They are all Israel. They are all children, meaning they are all the Israel of God, and they are all the children of God through another means. So in one sense, they are Abraham's descendants in a physical sense, and in a revelatory sense, they receive the word of God. But... They're not all redeemed sons of Abraham, descendants of Abraham, and they're not all redeemed Israel of God unless, verse 7, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. And he continues in his argument in chapter 9 to say that Isaac was the son of promise, and whoever trusts in the promise of God, redemption in Christ, and the promise of God that that entails, he is a true child of Abraham, and he is a part of all Israel. 
If they don't, like Ishmael did not, like Esau did not, like Pharaoh did not, like those examples did not, because they did not, they, they had, in the case of Ishmael and Esau, they had a physical lineage. But that didn't help them. It only helped them to the extent that they had access to the Word of God, but they didn't embrace it. They didn't believe it. Therefore, they're not sons of promise, and they're not a part of Abraham's true descendants. They're not a part of all true Israel. They're not. This is what dispensationalists do not understand or do not embrace, even if they understand the concept, they don't embrace it. They don't believe it. This is why they could say, there is a wife of Jehovah, bride of Messiah. Millennium is for Israel, not for the church. And that the church does not equal Israel. This is why they speak this way. So, these are my reservations, misgivings, and why I think that dispensationalism is wanting. So, Let's heed the word of God and examine these things. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.